Welcome to the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast, a complimentary resource for those on the road to recovery. I'm Mickey Trescott, a nutritional therapy practitioner living well with autoimmune disease in Oregon. I've got both Hashimoto's and celiac disease. And I'm Angie Alt, a certified health coach and nutritional therapy consultant, also living well with autoimmune disease in Maryland. I have endometriosis, lichen sclerosis, and celiac disease. After recovering our health by combining the best of conventional medicine with effective and natural dietary and lifestyle interventions, Mickey and I started blogging at autoimmune-paleo.com, where our collective mission is seeking wellness and building community. This podcast is sponsored by the Autoimmune Wellness Handbook, our co-authored guide to living well with chronic illness. We saw the need for a comprehensive resource that goes beyond nutrition to connect savvy patients just like you to the resources they need to achieve vibrant health. Through the use of self-assessments, checklists, handy guides, and templates, you get to experience the joy of discovery, finding out which areas to prioritize on your healing journey. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold. A quick disclaimer, the content in this podcast is intended as general information only and is not to be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. On to the podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast. Mickey here. Sorry that it's been so long since we've released any episodes. The truth is that Angie and I have spent a good part of this year working on training our very special AIP certified coaches. And now that our first class has graduated, we're back to focusing on developing some new podcast content for you guys to enjoy. We cannot wait to share with you guys what we've been up to, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we do have a couple of special bonus episodes to share with you guys. I'm going to give you guys a little backstory about how this came about because it definitely wasn't something we were planning. Uh, Our content director, which some of you guys might be familiar with, Grace, she is totally the most amazing person in the world and a huge part of how we're able to manage all of the things that we do. Um, So she was doing an interview with Angie for some writing that she was doing on the site And at the time, neither Angie or Grace knew how deep and personal this interview would be, and they recorded it so that Grace could revisit some of the events that Angie was talking about. So none of us really knew how moving and powerful this long conversational interview would be, and when we all gave it a listen, we thought that we needed to share it with you guys um, in hopes that maybe you might find it helpful to hear our personal healing stories in this format. So I have to be honest, this interview was very casual. The audio is not the best. So you might even hear like a doorbell ringing or a dog barking in the background. Um, I've done my best to make some edits, but don't let it distract you from some of the interesting and moving points of Angie's experience, like the full details of her 11-year struggle with obtaining her autoimmune diagnosis, much of which took place while living overseas in Africa. Uh, Before I let you guys move on to the recording, I just want to give Grace another quick shout out for being such a great interviewer, um, making both Angie and I feel really comfortable and for making this a really beautiful experience for both Angie and I. We'll be sharing my interview next. So for now, here's Grace and Angie. Hey 
Hey guys, this is Angie. Before my story gets going here, I wanted to give you a little disclaimer. My story includes a big chunk where I live in West Africa, and that experience was brand new for me and made doubly challenging by the fact that I was trying to navigate an undiagnosed disease that was rapidly worsening. I tried to represent that dual experience authentically here while also being sensitive to the realities of life in such a demanding environment and respectful of the people and culture there. It's very vulnerable on multiple levels, and I hope you'll extend me grace if at any point my story doesn't convey the depth of love I have for West Africa and its people. When people talk about their stories, they usually start like in childhood. Mm -hmm. So um, is that where you think you want to start? I lived very, very rural and homestead style when I was growing mm -hmm. up. So like I literally lived in a one room log cabin with a, with a outhouse and, um, my grandmother and my mom and my aunt raised a really big garden, like a one acre size garden. Wow. Um, we raised chickens and geese and at one point pigs, we got milk from a local farmer my dad and my grandfather and uncle hunted and fished a lot um so I you know we had really like fresh um deep well water I so in terms of like how I ate and the lifestyle I lived as a child I lived kind of idyllically I mean mm. um it, in terms of like you know what was going what my inputs you know we didn't go out to mm. eat hardly ever um, any kind of treats that we had were like homemade things. Mm, wow. So, so did um, you learn to cook from your parents or like was cooking, a uh, something you did a lot? As a yeah, kid? I did learn how to cook pretty young. Um, I think probably I started out learning how to bake because my grandma really liked to bake. Um, and so I spent a lot of time with my grandma and learning to bake and then kind of learned actual cooking a little bit later, probably when I was like in my later childhood and like early teens okay um so yeah I knew how to cook for myself pretty well and how to cook from scratch that is true like um mm. I probably actually didn't really get introduced to like eating out a lot or like um cooking from you know like boxed foods or, or things like that until actually I was in my late teens and, and like like living on my own mm. um so was like natural um, medicine and kind of like remedy, like traditional remedies, were those part of your approach to like health when you were younger or not necessarily? Um, yeah, kind of, kind of, um, you know, my grandma was really into that kind of stuff. She kind of um, knew a lot about herbs or, or like natural healing remedies or uh, had you know, contacts and friends who did, um, like for instance, we, there was, um, an old, uh, Yugoslavian woman who lived like up the gully from us Whoa. and, um, we would go and hang out with her and she knew a lot of stuff about things like that. Um, and she had had kind of this epic life leaving, uh, Europe after World War II and kind of having gone through that and so she kind of knew wow. all, the, all that kind of like folksy yeah. stuff um, also my grandfather was a recognized member of the Crow Indian tribe so wow I think there was kind of a you know it wasn't like 
they were like experts in it and it's not like we, you know, totally eschewed conventional medicine, but I think there was just definitely kind of a thread that was like, Mm. these are options. There are other ways to heal yourself and they're legitimate. So when did you, like in retrospect, when would you say you noticed the first signs of? Um, So the first signs that popped up were after my daughter was born. So I had her when I was 21. Mm-hmm. And a few months after she was born, I started to notice some kind of um, painful symptoms and changes uh, to my skin um, on my labia because uh, I was I had lichen sclerosis, which is mm-hmm. a autoimmune skin disease that affects the genitals, mainly of women. It sometimes affects men too, but mainly of mm-hmm. women. And I kind of noticed some changes and um, new symptoms crop up. And I actually looked up all those symptoms in a medical encyclopedia because there wasn't wow. really, there wasn't really like WebMD yet. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that was just starting, you know? Wow. So I looked it all up in a, a medical encyclopedia and I narrowed down what I thought it could be. And I went to my um, OB gynecologist, the doctor who had delivered my daughter. And I said, you know, I think I might have this. And he did an exam and he said, yes, you know, he, he diagnosed me and he sent me home with a steroid cream and just said like, you know, use this cream. And um, mm. he didn't tell me that it was an autoimmune disease and he didn't really oh he didn't, he didn't really encourage me to, to kind of be following up on it. Mm. Um, um, so the steroid cream was just like to manage flares or just to yeah, manage symptoms? Basically? Yeah, to try to, to try to manage symptoms and manage flares and bring it under control. Um, some people use that cream um, pretty, pretty regularly or even like, um, you know, consistently, but it, there are a lot of, uh, scary side effects of it. For one, it can be, uh, really thin the skin. And one of the symptoms of, of lichen sclerosis is that the skin is already quite delicate and thin. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I really didn't like using it. It didn't really ever seem to, um, it didn't really seem to impact my symptoms. Like it did, it didn't really, it didn't really help me that much. Okay. Um, so you, is that a time when you like started seeking out other options or did you just kind of like think this was, this was how it was going to be? Yeah, I just sort of thought that's how it was going to be. I didn't really, um, you know, I didn't really understand yet that it was an autoimmune disease and I, I think I was just like kind of so busy, you know, raising an infant. I was a single, I was a single parent. So I was just kind of so like busy in that, that I don't think I really had time to think through, okay, are there other ways to approach this? What can I do? When did the other diseases start popping up? Like what was the next one that you, what were the other symptoms that you noticed? It's kind of funny because, so that was my first disease to be diagnosed with and to have like a clear, somewhat 
somewhat easy. I don't I don't want to ever characterize that it's easy to diagnose an autoimmune disease because it's usually mm. not, but somewhat easy to characterize and diagnose. And so, but I actually had symptoms of uh, one of my other diseases already happening, and that was endometriosis. So oh. I had already been going through really painful periods and trouble with my periods since I was, you know, since I started menstruating. Definitely, you know, I started menstruating when I was 13 and definitely by the time I was 15, it was like, Mm. there was definitely something wrong, but, um, you know, I, I, it, it never was mentioned as an issue. You know, I kind of got told the typical thing like, oh, periods are painful and women get cramps and like take, take a mitol, you know? Mm Um, and a lot of the women in my family had similar symptoms and similar struggles with their periods. So I didn't, oh. I didn't really have a good understanding that what I was experiencing was like not only painful and, and, and not fun, but like abnormal. I didn't really, I didn't really understand that. And my doctors it, really weren't trying to help with that. Oh, <laughs> uh, right. Totally. Did, did um, your symptoms change after Maggie was born or did they, were they kind of just well, the same that they so, were before. Yeah, well, so I was really hopeful because a lot of people had told me that um, that your periods could get better after having a baby, and that if I had endometriosis, it was kind of like I wasn't being told that I had it, and nobody was suggesting that I should take the steps to be diagnosed for it. But it was kind of a term that was floating around out there, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, there's a very big myth in the endometriosis community uh, perpetuated, unfortunately, by a lot of conventional medicine doctors that um, if you have a baby, you can get rid of your endometriosis. And so I kind of thought like, okay, you know, maybe my painful periods that might be endometriosis will get better. And I didn't really have a chance to find that out because after my daughter was born, I chose to go on the Depo-Provera shot. Oh, what's that? It's a it's a birth control shot, and it prevents you from having a period at all for three months at a time. So you have, like, a, a shot, like, four times a year, and you don't have a period at all. And the reason I chose Depo was because I actually got pregnant with my daughter while I was on the traditional birth control pill. Wow. So I was very nervous <laughs> after oh, right. she was born, and I was like, oh, I don't know if I trust the pill anymore. What can I do? And my doctors yeah. suggested Depo. So I went on Depo, and because I wasn't having a period, I, I stayed on Depo for three years. And because I wasn't having a period, I I didn't realize that, you know, perhaps endometriosis could still kind of be lurking under the surface. Mm. And um, then after I went off of Depo, um, and went back onto a traditional birth control pill, you know, it, it was somewhat controlled over time. It steadily got worse until the point when I was finally, um, I finally had laparoscopic surgery, which is the only way to diagnose endometriosis currently and, um, got diagnosed. And that's like a whole, that's like moving into the next stage of my story that happened, um, following an evacuation in Africa. Oh, wow. Okay. So that didn't, there was many years. There was many years until I actually got diagnosed with it. But, but I guess to answer your original question and kind of a long, that was kind of a long story, but to 
answer your original question, yeah, I did suspect that there was other things wrong, but um, there was nothing kind of definitive yet. Yeah, okay. You didn't really connect it to lichen sclerosis? No. It was just sort of like, okay. Yeah. Um, so you had Maggie and you were kind of cruising along for mm-hmm. a few years. Did you mm-hmm. have any, um, like, did you notice any of the celiac uh, symptoms yet? Or did that not yeah. start until after yeah. oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, I started to have a little bit of changes, like digestive changes. And I actually went and saw um, my, I, I saw a nurse practitioner as my general, my general practitioner or my GP at that time and I went and saw her and she told me it was just IBS and like mm-hmm. you know just like take some over-the-counter you know medicines to try to calm calm my stomach and and that there was nothing you could do about IBS okay that was still definitely in the days when I mean it's only recently in the last few years that this has you know this concept has started to change but that was still definitely in the days when IBS was treated like a psychological like oh like you that happened yes yeah they were like you have IBS because you're kind of like a nervous stressed person wow you're in a stressful situation and you just have irritable bowel and and just like take some Take some um, over-the-counter stuff and don't worry about it. Um, I think it might be interesting for people to know what kind of IBS symptoms you had mm-hmm. since they can be different. Yeah. So I noticed that there was some kind of changes with my bowel movements, like um, kind of I would say like the color changed some and I would say I had kind of an increase in constipation. To be totally Mm -hmm. honest, I don't totally remember, like, you know, what what my bowel movements were like prior. But I remember feeling like, you know, it was kind of difficult for me to have bowel movements. And there was kind of some changes with with the bowel movements themselves. And... Mm -hmm. Um, I remember that I had a feeling like I was kind of uncomfortably full often, Mm. Um, but I didn't really have pain, you know, like kind of the, the like typical presentation of celiac disease is that you would have intestinal pain. Um, I didn't really have a lot of GI pain until like actually post my, my celiac diagnosis. Um, and I had developed, um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth by that point. And I think the pain I had was actually that not really celiac. So was there kind of a, a period of a few years before you went to Africa that you were just sort of dealing with everything and not just kind of like having low grade, uncomfortable symptoms, but not, not like crisis mode yet? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like, um, in those years, like, you know, I was single parenting and that was pretty intense. I was, you know, working full time and going to school and um, Mm. like I would work at night and go to school during the day or I would work during the day and go to school at night and, you know, I was taking care of my daughter and it was just like, you know, it was very stressful. There's, um, it's really clear to me in hindsight how big of a player stress was in my autoimmune disease Mm. journey, you know? Mm. Um, and that's, you know, it's pretty true for everybody with autoimmune disease, but I can really see where the, like, really acute stress happened. Um, 
And then I also met Dave during that time. And then, you know, we started dating and then we got married. Um, and I was kind of on and off dealing with kind of these more like sort of dis like kind of mildly disruptive and kind of low grade symptoms. Like I, I remember at one point shortly after Dave and I got married, I had, um, I was having kind of some like weird, irregular heartbeat issues and we, oh. we went and saw a cardiologist and I, you know, like I had to wear a monitor for like 24 hours and, you know, they thought that everything was okay. And, um, I got a lot of really severe sinus infections, like that would turn into like a major oh. issue that, that happened pretty often. But, you know, I kind of, I just didn't really tie everything together. Mm -hmm. Um, and it wasn't like crisis level, you know, like mm. it was kind of low level. And then, um, we lived in California and we moved to the East coast mm. and about a year after we got married and we decided that we were going to start trying to have a baby at that point. Mm. And, you know, no nothing happened. I just, mm. nothing happened. And then they, you know, we were advised by our doctors that if we didn't get pregnant for a year, after a year of trying that we should, you know, go to some fertility specialists. So we went to um, one of the actually leading fertility centers in the whole country is actually in our city oh wow so we went there and we did a bunch of testing and I remember we had a meeting with the doctor and we went in to meet the doctor and he said um that uh there was nothing conclusively wrong with either one of us mm. and that sometimes um Sometimes the, the reason for infertility is just unexplained and that it might have something to do with my age. And I was 28. Oh, my God. So I was really upset. <clears throat> um, and a lot of my friends were just starting or just around the corner from starting to have kids, you know. So, mm -hmm. like, I was, yeah. you know, my friends were having their first children at, like, 28, 29, 30. And it was going just fine. So I was like really upset that, I, that we were told yeah. we were given that answer. And Dave was really upset and he actually was really smart. He was really upset. And, and he said to the doctor, um, well, could this indicate that there's something deeper wrong? Could there be mm -hmm. something wrong with her health? And he started, Dave started to be very focused on you know, not necessarily the fertility, but what this might indicate about my deeper health. And me, not as smart as I could be, <laughs> hadn't still put that together. Like, I still wasn't living in the realm where I realized that my overall health could impact my fertility. Oh, wow. Um, and the doctor, I assume, said, like, no, there yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he said, no, there's nothing to worry about. You don't need to worry about that. Um, and so we, we, tried, we, we tried a little bit of a natural path. Uh, we went and saw um, a naturopathic doctor who suggested I go on this cleanse diet that was like oh. 30 days long. It involved a lot of herbal teas, a lot of like, um, you know, Chinese medicinal herbal teas um, that were meant to like 
stimulate and cleanse the liver and um, balance hormones. And um, it included a lot of broths and um, I eliminated some foods, including dairy and wheat. Mm. And I, I actually felt really good. <laughs> oh, wow. During that cleanse. Um, but in that same time, and I had like this crazy die off at the beginning of the cleanse, like three days into it, I smelled really horrible. My breath and my body odor smelled really horrible for about a week. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And not being on the wheat, uh, probably was really good for me, but I didn't really understand that. And, but in that same time period, Dave was offered his first job in West Africa, uh, in Guinea. And so we moved um, shortly after I did the one month cleanse and I didn't, you know, try to keep up on anything. And I just, I was so kind of focused on this very big international move and adjusting my daughter to this new environment and learning mm -hmm. a new language and, and all that kind of stuff that I didn't, I didn't pay attention to what a big clue it was that eliminating wheat and dairy made me feel so much better. So you, you made the move and then were things did you sort of just put, I guess, everything related to your symptoms on hold at that point? And, and like, it was like, there are more important things to worry about at this point? Yeah, for sure. I just like, I thought like, okay, you know, it, it really wasn't on my radar that I was having health problems so big that it could somehow impact our life mm -hmm. overseas. And um, yeah, I was just focused on other things. I think also an important player in why everything reached crisis level after going to Africa, you know, we had to have a lot of vaccines to go live in Guinea, you know, it's, oh, right. Guinea is one of the bottom 10 least developed countries on the planet. And so wow. you have to take a lot of vaccines even beyond the, you know, typical overseas travel vaccines. And and because we had a very short time frame from the point that they told Dave that we we were, you know, taking the post till when we had to leave, um, we took all those vaccines at once. Oh, we didn't yeah. do like kind of a more normal schedule. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get like acutely sick from them or anything at, at that point. But now in hindsight, I realized that that probably really sent my immune system into a total frenzy. Yeah. Um, uh, how, how long did you have after you learned you were going to move to the time you left the country? About two months. Wow. Okay. So you had to like sell your place and all your stuff and well yeah we were living in an apartment and we had to like we had to arrange to get out of our lease um we we sold most of our stuff um a lot of it got packed up and, tr and transported there but you know that's like it takes like three months for it to arrive in country so we oh, wow. kind of lived sort of with you know very little furnishing in an, in an apartment and um guinea for a while until our stuff arrived um what was that like what city were you in we were in a city the capital city of guinea which is called conakry i think conakry hmm i don't know i i haven't looked any time recently i i think the population's probably around a million i mean you know it's accurate 
census is hard in West Africa, but probably around a million people. It's kind of, um, the, the city kind of juts out onto a small peninsula into the Atlantic. And it's, um, it's a former French, uh, colony. So it's French speaking. It was super crazy. You know, I mean, it's one time our taxi driver there said that for for us to come to Guinea from America it was more like going to Mars. Yeah, how how did it feel in Guinea? I mean, like, I don't, this isn't necessarily related to your autoimmune story, but how, I mean, like, what were the days like? Like, I assume Dave went to work, like, in an office or something, or mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then were you involved with things like related to Dave's work or did you mostly stay home with Maggie or how did that work? Well, so Maggie went to an American international school in Guinea. Okay. Um, and so she, in the morning, it was like kind of down the road from our apartment building. So in the morning, Dave would drive her to school and then he would go to work. And then, um, I would kind of hang out around the house. I, I was working a little bit on finishing my bachelor's degree. Um, I ha- I've had a very long and winding path with my educational mm. journey. But, you know, I, a lot of start and stops with being a single yeah. mom. Yeah. Um, but so I was doing, um, you know, some online um, classes, sort of working on my degree and uh, that's when I first started blogging. I, I wrote a blog about um, oh. our family's life overseas. We found a taxi driver who was actually from Sierra Leone. He had fled to Guinea during Sierra Leone's civil war. So he was an Eng- he was English-speaking. Sierra Leone's an English-speaking country. So, oh. uh, he you know, if I needed to go places, I would call him and he could drive me places. Sometimes I would get together with, uh, other women whose husbands were working in the country. I couldn't yeah. get a permit to work in the country, so I didn't. Oh. I didn't work, but um, you know. So we would do, you know, go to the markets, do you know, do things like that. Yeah. And I was trying to learn French, not very successfully, but. <laughs> oh, I get it. I see. And what kind of foods were you eating there? Um. So yeah. So my diet changed a lot. You know, I um. We ate a lot of rice. Um, I did. I did still eat some wheat-based things. We could get flour, but uh, you know, usually, usually, what I would have to do with the flour, and I had to do this in Sierra Leone too. You would have to sift the flour to sift all the weevils out of it. Oh yeah. And oh you would sift it. We I would sift it onto big white towels, and then we would set the towels out in the sun to kill any larvae. Oh, wow. And then sift again, and then, you know, that was the flour we used. Um, so I did, I did, it was good that I knew how to cook from scratch as well as I did, because I did a lot of from scratch cooking, you know, like I would oh, make, you did. like I would make my own tortillas to make enchiladas, for instance. Um, and there were, you know, I did, a, I did some shopping in like the um, street markets, but mostly um, our housekeeper, Nancy, did it for me because they wouldn't treat me fairly because I was white. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Nancy would go to the market for me, but um I did go to like there were some grocery stores and stuff, not anything that you would remotely recognize as a grocery store in the United States, but sort of 
more like small European grocery stores, um, often not well stocked, but more in that European grocery store style. And so like, you know, once in a while they would have maybe some cheese or, you know, different kinds of like maybe Pringles, like some imported Pringles and stuff like mm. that. But everything was kind of old and had kind of been sitting in yeah. a shipping container and it was overpriced. And Right. Were there restaurants to speak of or did you mostly just eat at home all the time? Yeah, there were restaurants and uh, we ate out kind of, mm, yeah, like sort of sort of minimally still, but we did eat out. Um, okay. And there were pretty good ones. You know, there was a restaurant called Jardin de Guinea, Garden of Guinea, and um, they served really good food. There was a Vietnamese restaurant right across the street from us. Whoa, interesting. And so sometimes we would, you know, eat out there or whatever. We also sometimes didn't move around as freely as we might have because when we, when Dave was offered the job, um, a military dictator had just come to power through a coup. So we were there um, under his rule and he was very unpredictable guy who kind of rose up through the military ranks and there was like a really heavy military presence everywhere and um, there was a lot of tension in the country because he had come to power through coup and said that he would allow free and fair elections Um, like for instance a lot of the people that we knew that were in the country were there to try to help a democratic process you know uh, come to fruition and and to monitor that process and everything. So there was a lot, a lot of tension in the country. And how many years did you end up staying in Guinea? Well, so uh, we we only ended up being there for six months because of this situation. So oh, okay. we were supposed to be there for a two-year post. Excuse me. And um, six months in, I woke up one night in just really excruciating pain. And we thought it might be appendicitis. So we were very good friends with the Peace Corps doctor who was stationed there in the country. So we called him. He was this like Eastern European guy. Um, And we named Tryon. And we called Tryon in the middle of the night. And he thought it might be appendicitis as well. So by that time, it was getting to be like early morning. And we went to a French-run clinic called Clinic Pasteur. And they weren't sure, but they decided to do some x-rays and ultrasounds. And they ended up seeing that there was something going on with one of my ovaries, but they weren't sure mm. they weren't sure that it had burst. And also that I had um a pretty some kind of pretty serious infection going on oh wow so they put me on an IV antibiotic and then started the process of determining whether or not I should be evacuated from the country Mm. um, in case it was appendicitis because if it was appendicitis I needed to have surgery and our our medical evacuation insurance allows no surgery in West Africa so I would have to go to to Paris Mm. but they couldn't determine for sure if I needed surgery or not so they wanted to evacuate me to another West African West African country Senegal 
to, oh, okay. to be further evaluated and see if it was my appendix or if it was a fully burst ovary or what was happening. So they gave me a bunch of pain medicine and IV antibiotics. And while this was happening, <laughs> this is so just super crazy. You can, you're going to start to see why it's hard for me to tell my story. <laughs> <laughs> while, while this was all happening, there was um, a planned protest in the country against the, the coup president, oh. the, the, the dictator. Um, because he was supposed to be allowing elections and he kept delaying. Mm. And so there was a big protest and the government said, yes, yes, that's fine. You can protest. And they marched through the kind of the, one of the main thoroughfares in Conakry and into the country's big soccer stadium. And once they got in the stadium, the military locked the protesters in and opened fire on them. Oh, my God. And um, that stadium was about a mile from our house, and they killed oh. a bunch of people, and they publicly raped women. Oh, my God. And it was really, really crazy. It was very, very hard to move around um, the city because everything was kind of on lockdown with the military. And wow. our medical evacuation insurance that those doctors decided that I did need to be evacuated to Senegal so we had to do this really crazy process where we coordinated with my husband's work and with Dave's work and um and tried to we had to leave really early in the morning and try to get as free and clear travel as we could to the airport mm. And so, uh, and we had a dog. No. So we had to make all these, we packed up everything, made all these quick plans about what to do. When you, was it, was Dave going to stay there? Were all three of you going to evacuate together? We were all three going to evacuate together because of the situation in the country. We didn't want to leave Maggie. Oh, yeah. And I couldn't really um, communicate in French on my own. And I was going to go to another French speaking country. Okay. So we were all going to go together and we wouldn't leave, we weren't going to leave Maggie because of the situation. So we got to the airport and we, the, the transportation ministry allowed our air ambulance to land. We got on the air ambulance, the doctors on the air ambulance started like dealing with me and some military personnel boarded the air ambulance and went through this series of questioning dave had, this is this is still in guinea right yes this is still in guinea okay dave had to actually get on the phone with the actual transportation minister of the whole country oh my God. and convince him to allow the air ambulance to take off and so um, then we finally got permission and we left. And when we got in the air, we could see there was fires burning all over the city. Oh, my God. And there was, like, gunfire. <laughs> oh, my God. It was really out of control. And then... And meanwhile, like, you're... I mean, your friends and people you know are still down there, yes. right? Yeah. Wow. And, um, like, there's this whole extra layer of, like, um, they're going to let me, the white lady with a mm. stupid a stupid problem, leave. But there was people being killed. Wow. Yeah. 
And um, so we got to, to Senegal. We went to Dakar, the capital of, of Senegal, and uh, went to a clinic there. And I went through um, a couple more days of testing and things like that. And they ended up determining that I had had a cyst on my ovary burst. But in the meantime, (laughs) um, all of the spouses and families of non-essential embassy personnel um, for all of the U.S. people and, and all the other countries started evacuating Guinea. So we ended up kind of in this weird limbo for about 10 days where we stayed in Dakar. I was finally out of the hospital, but we just kind of stayed at a hotel in Dakar with, and uh, you know, other friends started arriving. Oh, they were all evacuated to Senegal as well. Yeah. Yeah. And we were all just kind of waiting in limbo for whatever our companies or organizations, whatever, you know, was going to be our directions about what to do. Mm. And they told us that um, we were going to get reposted to Cote d'Ivoire, to the Ivory Coast, and that uh, Maggie and I would stay there and Dave would travel back and forth every few weeks from Guinea and continue at post. Oh, how far is that? Uh, It's south of Sierra Leone and Benin, I think. I can't remember if Benin's in between there. Or maybe it's Ghana that's in between there. So it's it's south of Guinea by quite a ways. Also, okay. inter, inter-country flights in West Africa are, like, a thing. <laughs> it's like, it's easy? No, it's, like, a big, big deal. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, wow, that's surprising. Yeah. So, and no. he was going to need to fly. It wasn't, like, a driving... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can't drive like that. Not Not easily at all. Like, there's no like okay. in, inter-country highways capable of that uh i see so you and maggie are going to go to ivory coast at, just to sort of continue waiting it out to see if yeah if, and like dave's gonna continue on with his post and we're just gonna kind of be waiting it out and waiting it out to see what what shakes out in guinea um and and had things sort of calmed down from the i guess the what would you call that the, the medical crisis or the political crisis? Yeah, the political uh, crisis in Guinea. Uh, I mean, things calmed down, but in a very tense and really not good way. So, for instance, like our housekeeper um, was part of a group of citizens who went and um, witnessed and identified bodies and helped with burial because the government was lying about whether or not people had been killed. International Rescue Committee, like IRC and Human Rights Watch, started having people dispatched to the country because, you know, they were trying to cover up what they had done. Were you um, prepared to kind of continue that, like, long distance kind of thing until his post was finished? Or did no. you? Okay. No. So I was kind of just like a complete wreck by that point. Oh my God, yeah. Excuse me. One thing that had happened when um, I got sick was like something weird. So I don't know if this was related to the celiac disease or what, but my digestive system kind of shut down. And for about four or five days, I, I couldn't really eat at all. I didn't go to the bathroom. I really didn't have any thirst. Wow. And I lost a lot of weight in that period. Mm-hmm. 
And I just was kind of very like gaunt and tired and I could tell that there was something still wrong, but I didn't know what was wrong. Did you have to have surgery for your um, cyst or? No, no. Okay. They identified it through ultrasound and MRI or they thought they identified it through ultrasound and MRI. This, so, but you you also had that infection, right? What yeah. Was that kind of yeah. getting taken care of? The infection the... had been taken care of and they couldn't really identify for sure why the infection had started or what, you know, what was causing it. So I really wasn't at all prepared to go live by myself in the Ivory Coast, another French-speaking country, and try to navigate without Dave while he's, like, in this other country that's dangerous. And I've, yeah. I've put together this whole support system of people who now are going to be scattered all their different ways by their organizations. Mm. And I was like, I, can't, I don't think I can rebuild that right now. And so we made the decision that uh, Maggie and I would go back to the U.S. and Dave would finish six more months of his of his contract and try to look for a new post. Mm. And so he flew with us and we went back to Montana to stay temporarily. And then he, he returned to Guinea. And so then we were apart for about six months. And during that time, I had another episode you know quote unquote episode just like what I had gone through in Guinea and it turned out that what was wrong and what had caused the infection that they had seen and all the pain was that I had chronic appendicitis caused by endometriosis that was wrapped around my appendix and had basically like glued my appendix down to my right ovary Wow. So it wasn't actually the ovary that was, yeah. it was involved, but it wasn't actually like causing it. Right, right. So uh, yeah, so I had kind of another episode of that and my little brother had t t took me to the ER and my gynecologist who, you know, my gynecologist from, from previously, the one who had delivered Maggie and everything and diagnosed me with the lichen sclerosis. After I went to the ER and they kind of looked at things, we called my doctor and he decided that he suspected it was endometriosis and he wanted to do surgery. Mm. So we did do surgery and then they could for sure identify it. You know, they can visually see it and then they also like send it to pathology and they confirmed that I did have endometriosis. It was stage four endometriosis. They treated it. Um, they removed my appendix um, I didn't even know at that time that you could have chronic appendicitis. I thought it was always only acute, but it can be chronic. Yeah. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Wow. Um, but they saved your ovary, right? But they saved my ovary. Yeah, they saved both my ovaries and both my fallopian tubes. My uterus was okay. Um, wow. The pouch of Douglas, that's the area behind your uterus and in front of your um, sigmoid colon, the last part of your your large intestine. Um, that was all kind of uh, scarred up and, and had, you know, endometrial growth in it, and they removed all of that. Did, did that have, will that have long-lasting, like, effects on your digestion or your fertility or anything? Or um, It has really big effects on my fertility, and at the time, it wasn't yet affecting my digestion it did it did definitely contribute to you know constipation and, and trouble with bowel movements but it wasn't yet as severe as it later got when you got back to Montana were you was there a period when you started like feeling a little bit better or was it 
pretty much like immediately you had to get another infection. No, I started feeling better and it was, you know, and uh, this is part of kind of the crazy making of autoimmune disease. I think, you know, like I went through a period where I was, you know, relatively stable and it seemed like I had just like maybe had a cyst burst on my ovary and like I was fine now. And it was really weird, you know? Mm, yeah. Um, and you, you started like gaining weight again that I didn't. You had lost yeah, and... I mean, I I put on a little bit of weight. Like I didn't look so uh, as gaunt anymore. But I definitely, at that point, was probably entering into a period where I started to steadily lose. Mm, okay. You know, I didn't. I, I I like put on enough to not look as gaunt as I had while I was in the hospital in Africa. But I, I didn't. I didn't really gain anymore after that. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, um, when Maggie was little and when she, you know, when she was born, I lived in Montana. I'm from Montana. And uh, right, he right. was, he was my gynecologist prior to her being born and then my obstetrician. And then, you know, I, I saw okay. him again until I had, you know, left Montana, but you know, he still had my patient records and things like that. And so he was kind of the right doctor to contact. Oh, can you also explain to me what stage four endometriosis is um so I assume that's like the high the last stage yeah yeah that's the highest stage it's not always associated with the most severe pain um you can have a much lower stage of endometriosis and still be in a lot of pain um but it is often very painful um just Mm -hmm. because it's uh usually stage four means it's really widespread so it's like you know all throughout the pelvic cavity it also means it's um, it's usually deep infiltrating. That means that the endometriosis is kind of like deeply embedded in the tissue that it's kind of gotten into. Mm. It usually means that it's affected other organs. You know, there's other organ involvement. Um, mm. I would have and to, it... I would have to look up probably to know exactly what they, they, you know, characterize as stage four, but that's my understanding. Okay. And does endometriosis, um, tissue like, it sounds like it has it um, doesn't differentiate between the parts of your body that it creeps into. Does it just sort of like uh, it? I thought I sort of like always imagined that it stayed in your like reproductive organs or area, but it's but does it just sort of spread like <laughs> at will all around you? Yeah, your- yeah, it can it can kind of go anywhere so endometriosis is named for the fact that endometrial lining the the tissue that should be inside your uterus and that builds up each month prior to your period um, is growing in places outside of the uterus where it doesn't belong oh, and, okay you know it's often primarily affecting the reproductive organs the ovaries the the fallopian tubes the uterus but it can also affect you know just about anywhere inside the abdominal cavity, including, you know, there are women who have it so severe that it gets into their lungs, pulmonary endometriosis. Um, Wow. It can, it is extremely rare, but it can even infect the brain tissue. Infect is the wrong word, but invade, I guess, maybe is the right word. Um, It definitely can get into the digestive system. And it, and it, um, become is it just sort of like it just like clogs things up kind of like it just gets yeah it kind of um scars 
things and um, you know the because of the way it grows it can kind of distort the shapes of things so for instance you know for some reason for some women um, the reason that they're having infertility as a result of their endometriosis is because it's pulled their uterus into the wrong shape oh. or like it blocks a fallopian tube so eggs can't go from the ovaries into the uterus like they need to mm. um, it can cause a lot of a lot of nerve problems and you know a lot of pain resulting from that um, also, so that that tissue, that endometrial endometrial tissue, it needs to respond to hormonal signals every month. That's how it shed, you know, the lining sheds when you mm -hmm. have your period. Well, it does that even if it's not inside of the uterus. So oh, wow. it's receiving those hormonal signals and getting inflamed and bleeding in places where it shouldn't. Wow. It's, you know, that's one reason that it's so painful yeah that's really scary that reminds me of like like x-men like gone wrong kind of yeah 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 it's it is it's like i don't know like my my endometrial lining is like on on steroids it is a mutation yeah. actually just yesterday i read um new research that's out that it is not cancer but uh it its growth can be characterized mm -hmm. as cancer-like. Wow. Um, so, okay, so you're back in Montana, and you were diagnosed mm -hmm. with endo, and you got, you had a surgery. Mm -hmm. And um, meanwhile, Dave is still in Africa. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. And then how long after... Well, I guess what happened next? Like, did the did Dave stay in Africa for the six months that he planned to, or did he stay longer? Or he, he stayed, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then did he come back to Montana after that? Yeah. So then he uh, he in he found a job that had a post in in the in a neighboring country to Guinea, Sierra Leone, and okay. we got reposted to go there in uh, May of. 2010 my surgery for the endometriosis was in march of 2010 so i was diagnosed finally with endometriosis in march of 2010 and okay. then we moved to sierra leone in may of 2010 and following my surgery often when women have surgery and and hopefully get their endometriosis all removed their fertility window kind of opens up again for a while so our doctor oh. told us that we could try right away to have a baby um, and see if it would work now or um, he recommended that I go on birth control continuously so I take the birth control all the time not just you know like I don't take the week break where you normally break okay. to have your cycle so that I wouldn't have a period at all to help control growth oh is it does that help it does help, but unfortunately, there are very not good side effects of taking so much birth control for so long. Okay, you know, but yeah. I I wasn't really aware of that at the time, and we decided that um, because we were moving to another, uh, you know, bottom ten undeveloped country, and because of what we had just been through medically, that I would take the birth control and that we wouldn't try to get pregnant. Okay. Um, and how long was the was the post going to be in Sierra Leone? So the post in Sierra Leone was also supposed to last two years. 
after, uh, after the surgery, was, were there any other um, approaches that you were prescribed or that you uh, attempted to manage your symptoms or did you just, was the birth control kind of Yeah, the birth control was kind of presented as the option and it seemed to be working. So we just kind of went with it. Um, And what about your digestion and everything? Were you, did you have other, did you sort of feel like you were over the hump after you had the the surgeries and yeah there was like this window for a little while where well where I felt really good um I I suddenly I seemed to have better energy again and I I remember you know I was still in Montana waiting for Dave to come back and for us to move to Sierra Leone and I remember I um, started working out a little bit with my sister and I was really liking that and I I just looked better Mm. um I don't know how to describe that exactly but I just looked healthier and I felt healthier and it seemed like I was kind of over the hump, you know? How long between when you, oh, just a couple of months, right? You had your surgery and then you guys moved right, right after that. Okay. And then, so you got to Sierra Leone. What was it like there? How was it different from Guinea? Well, so it was a former British colony. So it's, it's, it's English speaking sort of. So they speak kind of a pigeon language that's sort of a blend of uh, French, English, and Portuguese, and it's called Creole. You got settled in, and like, were you feeling pretty good there for a while, or did things start? Yeah, I was feeling pretty good there, and I think I like knew what to expect of the developing world by that point, so I was kind of like, I've got your number, Africa. What do you, (laughs) what do you got? Like, I've, I survived a pretty major thing, like, what do you got? Give it to me. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I was I kind of took a pretty tough attitude. I, um, I still didn't get very good deals, but I shopped more in the market. And like, <laughs> um, we actually our housekeeper from Guinea. Um, her name is Nancy, and we asked Nancy to come and join us, and she came. Oh wow! Cool. So that was great. Yeah, we love her. And um, so she came, and she she still helped me out a lot. And um, it just kind of felt settled, and I felt like I was kind of like okay um and I I continued my blog and um I was still working on school some um and yeah I was just like kind of doing my thing and Dave was working and Maggie went to the internet the American International School there did you so I assume that you had another did you have, have another evacuation? I had two, yeah, I had two more evacuations. So in September of 2010, I think it was September, I started to have some problems again. And this is when like lots and lots of very like just kind of random and weird symptoms started to pop up. All kinds of things mm-hmm. kind of started happening at once. Like, you know, I started to have... Um, like tingling and numbness in some of my limbs and some muscle pain, uh, bone pain. Mm. Um, I started to I started to run a low grade fever pretty often and have kind of burning behind my eyes like when you have a fever. Mm. Um, I started to lose a lot of hair. I started to lose weight a little more noticeably. Mm. and eventually muscle mass too. Mm. Um, I I had more of those weird heart problems from a long time before. 
like weird heart rhythms that were really disconcerting. Um, and eventually in September of 2010, I, I was having a lot of leg pain and this really kind of deep, weird pain in my leg and numbness in the bottom of my leg. And we decided to call the evacuation insurance, not, not to necessarily evacuate, but, but because we, um, we thought we, we wanted to get their advice. We wanted to talk to the doctors Mm. And they asked me about my birth control use, and I told them, and they started to be worried that I had a blood clot, a deep vein thrombosis. Oh, that was okay. I remember you mentioning that the yeah, other day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was told to go to the hospital there to have it evaluated, and so we went to the hospital, and it was really scary because, you know, if it was blood clot, like... yeah. There's, you don't have a lot of good options and without, without doing any testing, they decided to give me a blood thinner. Okay. And then the doctors with the evacuation insurance didn't like it, that they weren't doing any testing. So they decided to go ahead and evacuate me again to Senegal. So I went to Dakar again. Um, And that time I went without Dave and Maggie because it had been so stressful and disruptive to the family before. I just didn't want to put them through it. And I decided to go on my own. And a a colleague of Dave's who was um, stationed in Dakar met me and helped me as as best we could kind of navigate the translation with the French doctor. Okay. So does Dave speak French also? Yeah, he does. Mm -hmm. Okay. And... Um, is this the time when you, like, were, had that feminist nurse come in and talk to you? Actually, the feminist nurse was was with the Guinea situation. Oh, really? Yeah, it was it was from that first evacuation. They were like they were taking me to an MRI center and. Uh, oh yeah, well, so that there there was the nurse before who was like telling me that we were feminists and she could inject my IV with whatever and it was fine. Right. And then. Um, in that same st- hospital stay, they took me to an MRI center, and the nurse who escorted me was the one who made the ambulance pull over so she could bargain for a barracuda. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so when you're in Senegal, did you um, – oh, wait, what was I going to ask you? Oh, yeah, did you get airlifted out again, yeah, like the yeah. same same situation? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like kind of getting old routine. Yeah, right. So took another air ambulance, went to the car. Um, the doctor who was supposed to perform the ultrasound refused to come in on a Sunday. Oh my God, no way. So I stayed overnight in the hospital by myself. Um, and then in the morning, and they just kept giving me blood thinners. And then in the morning he came and he did an ultrasound and they found nothing. Mm. And by that point we couldn't determine if that's because they put me on blood thinners or... Oh, right. I came back and then it was rainy season and, and the end of the school year. So Maggie and I left to come to Montana for home leave. Oh. And we, we came home in the summer for home leave. And then I re- we, we returned and it was in late September of 2011 that I had my final evacuation. And oh. so when I got back to Sierra Leone... Um, 
after Yeah, when, when did you return? Like, August or something? Yeah. And I was just having more and more problems. I was also, by this point, having a lot of kind of, like, um, I was starting to struggle pretty bad with, like, anxiety and depression. And um, I was having these really weird, angry outbursts. Um, where it was sort of like I was like out it was almost like being outside of myself and seeing that I was like really um, unreasonable and kind of being crazy but I couldn't seem to kind of like get a hold of it and stop wow and now we actually know that that's a symptom of um, me being glutened (laughs) oh I see yeah but we didn't know that at the time. So it was kind of like really crazy. Anyways, like, uh, so a lot of like super intense symptoms were starting to happen. And I knew something was really wrong. I was having a really hard time. Um, we had actually started seeing um, like a long distance counselor over Skype because I was really like, at this point, I was starting to kind of spend a lot of time telling Dave that I thought we needed to go home sooner. And he was trying to be committed to his contract and not really kind of fully understanding. Is that because you were feeling, uh, like, depressed or because, uh, like, was, were you saying? I knew like, I had I, a health problem. I knew something was wrong. Oh, okay. I, had spent, I had spent a lot of time in the U.S. over the summer on home leave, like, seeing doctors, um, okay. telling them what had happened with the leg thing and the suspected blood clot. And, like, you know, I was going around seeing all these doctors and asking them, like, could this be related to the endometriosis? Like, what could be going on? And, you know, I was getting a lot of, like, you live in a stressful situation and, yeah. um, you know, you're just, like, stressed and you need to calm down. Izzy, stop it. So, like, a lot of that was going on. Mm. And I was kind of just getting dismissed, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I was spending a lot of time like telling Dave that we needed to go home and that I was really worried about my health and I needed to get help. Um, did you get, did the, like some of those weird symptoms you were having, like the hair loss and like all that stuff, did those start, start to like go away after no. you had your home leave? Oh, no. they just continued? No, okay. it just continued. From this point on, it just kind of like built and built and built. Like, And I assume you didn't get really any good advice when you were home in Montana no. from the doctors? No. Okay. No, a lot of dismissal, um, a lot of condescension. Um, a couple mm. of times, you know, D- Dave was home for a portion of that home leave with us. And, you know, a couple of times he went to doctor's appointments with me um, and he would, this is, you know, we were talking to you about this the other day. This happened a lot in Africa, but it also happened in the U.S. where the doctors would like Mm. take him aside and ask him if I had like a history of hypochondria or, um, you know, is your wife like prone to kind of being neurotic? Yeah. (laughs) Like a lot of that happened. Um, and he also knew there was something wrong, but he, and so he was trying to advocate for me, but he didn't kind of realize how serious it was. Through September, things were just getting worse and worse and worse, and I was kind of in really bad shape. And um, I, I ended up having this incident where I 
I passed out. I was, I was starting to have trouble with my, like my blood pressure and things. And I would be dizzy even if I was laying down and Mm. I would feel faint even with like my legs raised laying down. And I ended up having this night where something was just really wrong and I was really panicky. I I had a really strong feeling of dread. Mm. Um, and I kept telling Dave something was wrong and I, I, um, we finally decided to go to a clinic in, in Freetown called Davidson Nichols, a kind of makeshift clinic hospital. And because um, we knew that the doctor there, he was a Sierra Leonean, but he received his training in Tennessee. And so Dave drove me and on the way I couldn't really uh, talk right. I was slurring my words and I was having a really hard time communicating well with him. And I was very like on the edge of passing out the whole time. And Dave was really panicked mm. and we got to the clinic and I passed out on the way in to the clinic. And then we got into the kind of the like waiting room area. And while I was sitting in a chair, I just knew it was going to happen. And I told Dave, I'm going to pass out. And I slid out of the chair and passed out again. And I kept trying to tell the nurses that something was wrong. And they decided that I was um, like, uh, that I needed to be calmed down. And their kind of favorite thing in Africa to do is give you an injection. So they gave me a sedative, but the nurse (laughs) pushed it pushed it through too fast and she blew out the vein in my arm Mm. so it was excruciatingly painful and I watched this huge bruise spread up my whole vein up my arm oh wow what was the sedative I mean you were passing out like what would the sedative even do (laughs) you cannot you cannot question an African nurse (laughs) (laughs) I understand just have to go with the flow so so that, so that happened, and then Dave called um, our medical insurance again, and they, because I was running kind of a low-grade fever, they thought that I might have malaria. So I went and I went, we, were, we went to another clinic, and I was tested for malaria, and it came back positive um, for cerebral malaria. Oh, no. And so they started me on uh, IV artisanat drugs. They're anti-malarial drugs. And they were like an IV form of it. And I was told by the doctors that it's, it's kind of like the chemo of malaria drugs. Uh-oh. And so they started me on that. But I still didn't get well. I was still having more and more problems. And they ran another test and in another clinic. We went to another clinic and they ran another malaria test and that was negative. But oh it, was, my God. it was just really clear that something was really wrong. Yeah. And Dave was really panicked and really upset. And Wait, fr- sorry, can you remind me, were you guys still in Freetown or were yeah. you, did you go somewhere? Okay. Yeah, we're still in Freetown. So Dave was really panicked and really upset and our friends were starting to get pretty panicked and upset and could see that, you know, something was really wrong. And so then 
the medical insurance decided that I would evacuate one more time if I um, made the decision to permanently repatriate to the United States. Mm. And they took me to a tropical diseases hospital in Brussels. And that was just en route to the United States, basically? Yeah, yeah okay. basically. So they took me there, and by the time I got there, um, there was like, well, first of all, I really wasn't supposed to board the. Pl they didn't. They didn't have a medical flight, and they couldn't send a nurse to escort me. So we had to um, board a commercial flight, and you're not really supposed to be allowed to board a commercial flight if you're that ill. Mm -hmm. But we knew, um, we are very good, very close friends with the station, the station commander for Brussels Airlines. Mm. So he came and escorted me through and helped me get on the plane and basically told us how to act to try to keep it quiet from the stewardesses until we got there. Wow. And then... Did he, was he on the flight with you or did you just help No, he just helped us board. Okay. And so you were with Maggie and Dave? Yeah. Yep. And when we got to Brussels, um, I was just really visibly ill. And when we were going through um, customs, the customs officer was like, what is wrong with you? Are you sick? And I said, yes. And we, we had gotten some negative tests, but we'd also gotten some positive tests. So we thought I might have malaria. Mm -hmm. And he was like, what are you sick with? And I said, I have malaria. And he said, are you going to give malaria to everyone in my country? Oh, my God. And... I was like, you idiot. I was like, that's not how malaria spreads. Do I look like, <laughs> do I look like a mosquito? <laughs> and then he just thought it was so funny. And then we were met by a car. Oh, he thought it was funny. I yeah. thought you were going to say he got like really offended. And no, like, no. He, okay. he thought it was, pretty, it was a pretty good joke. And then we were met by a car and we were taken to the tropical diseases hospital. And by the time I got there, I was really, really severely de dehydrated and they could tell that something was wrong. But again, there was no, they couldn't find any sign of malaria and, you know, they did some brain scans and my brain was okay. Like there was no, it didn't show any effects of cerebral malaria mm -hmm. and, you know, they just kind of focused on like, rehydrating me and kind of calming me and every morning they would bring me I stayed there for four days and every morning they would bring me um a bowl of a French soup called pottage and pottage has a flour base so so every every morning I would get this terrible oh. numbness down the center of my face and be freaked wow, out and upset really? again it, it was and it was really clearly connected to eating that food. Well, I did, I still didn't. I still didn't like. It just wasn't on my radar that celiac disease oh. could be a thing. So I just still didn't know. But it was like that's what was happening, right? Yeah. Okay. And um, so whatever. It was like pretty crazy. I was like, again, I had just like lost a ton of weight and um, uh we ended up finding out that it was likely that the slide that they had taken my blood on in Sierra Leone when they first said it was malaria was a contaminated slide. Like the guy before oh. me had malaria. Yeah. Okay. Um, but so anyways, whatever, 
it was really very intense and I got out of the hospital and I remember the first thing I ate outside of the hospital was a steak tartare sandwich and the steak tartare was so good but then I immediately had the feeling again you know this numbness and the heart palpitations and I just I don't know how to describe it Grace it's just this feeling of dread like like something mm. very bad is going to happen like wow, I'm like I'm going to die wow do you now looking back do you think of that as sort of like an intu like an intuition feeling yeah. or like mm-hmm. associ- an asso- feeling associated with the crazy like mental stuff that happens when you get glutened. I, I, I totally associate it with the crazy mental stuff that happens with when you get glutened, but I think it's also kind of an, an intuition. You know, it's kind of your mm-hmm. body's like innate intelligence telling you like this is not working. Yes. You know? But you, but like, of course, you couldn't have known that it was connected to the food. I yeah, mean. I didn't understand. I just didn't, it just wasn't even on my radar at all. I just totally didn't understand, especially because, you know, I was in a tropical diseases hospital. They were looking for tropical diseases. You know, yeah. they were telling me that this is like the after effects of being very ill with malaria. It's the after effects of the very heavy malaria drugs. Um, like, whatever so oh okay so you said so you're saying when they took the test and found no malaria that they thought that meant that you had malaria but it was already cleared out of your system Mm -hmm. oh do you think you ever had malaria no later on I found out I did not I I I had actual like malaria antibody tests done oh okay but at this point they were still they were still they were still treating me thinking that I had just like survived cerebral malaria in Sierra Leone (laughs) Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. And then meanwhile, your symptoms are pretty much just not even getting better. Yeah, they're not getting better at all, you know, and and okay. it's just like really on top of it. It's just like a very extremely stressful situation. So like how were you um, coping with that, I guess, at this point? Were you just like, were you feeling like despair or yeah. like... Yeah, wow. that's a pretty that's actually probably a really good word to use to use. I don't know if I've ever used that myself to describe it, but yeah, that's pretty accurate. I felt mm-hmm. like despair. I felt like um just really um really unheard. I felt like mm-hmm. um I knew that kind of adapting to living in the developing world is really challenging. For for anybody who who you know go, goes there for the first time but I felt really ashamed of myself like I hadn't been able to cope for some reason oh, yeah. like I wasn't as with it as you know some of my other friends who were managing to you know make it through their postings and yeah I felt so I felt really ashamed of that um I felt like I needed to have an answer, but I didn't have an answer. And, you know, I felt like, like I started to doubt my own self. Like, am I like, am I not sane? (laughs) Am I, you know, um, it was really, yeah, it was really awful. It was very isolating. Oh yeah, I'm sure. And you, at this time, you aren't really sure what your next move will be like whether oh wait no you you were going to repatriate right yeah so we knew that 
like I had to go back and I couldn't, I couldn't live overseas anymore. And, you know, this, like, it put a lot of strain on our marriage, obviously. Like Dave was trying to stay employed in part because he wanted to have good insurance and be able to, and, you know, be making a paycheck because he, he could see that I was obviously very sick and he wanted to take care of me. Mm -hmm. But all, and, and also he felt like, you know, um, commitment to his, his work there and, and the kind of, the kind of work that he does, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. it's like a heart commitment. Right. You know, so I think he felt like really, he was really conflicted and, um, he had to, he had to return again to Sierra Leone and, and stay for a while while we tried to find a new situation that would allow us to stay in the U S and, and allow me to get medical care. Well, yeah, because you needed, I mean, you couldn't work, I assume, but you, like, <laughs> presumably, like, needed to have yeah. income somehow, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, it was all, like, really super challenging. Wow, and yeah. <laughs> what do you think was going on for Maggie at the time? Like, did she um, understand what was happening with you? How old was she? Uh, so we ended up evacuating like the day after her 11th birthday and I spent her 11th birthday overnight by myself in a very rundown African hospital Wow! with like people crying and the smell of urine and laying Mm -hmm. in a bed feeling like, I don't, I just like bad. (laughs) I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Really bad. And Um, I'm, so I missed her birthday and luckily, um, you know, our friends, our, our Belgian friends, they like came to the rescue and threw her birthday party and, um, I, I think she was confused. I think she was worried. I think she was also like a little kid that, you know, needs their parents to like have it together. And, and, you know, there's probably part of her that was a little bit angry with me, Mm -hmm. um, which is totally understandable. Yeah. Um, it was also really disruptive to her all of this time uh, with all the different evacuations and everything that was happening overseas. You know, it really disrupted um, her schooling. Yeah. She, she ended up spending two years in elementary school where she went to several schools in one year. And yeah, a lot of temporary stuff happening. Mm-hmm. She, but she's also a very, very adaptable kid, and she's a very good traveler. So, mm. she she hung in there. Wow. So, so how long were you in Brussels before you ended up finally moving back to the U.S.? I guess I feel like we ended up spending maybe about a week or so there. Okay. Um. Four days I was in the hospital, and then we had probably another three or four days outside of the hospital where we kind of got everything arranged and kind of caught our breath. Mm-hmm. And then we returned to the U.S., and Dave kind of got me installed with my family, and then he went back to Sierra Leone to kind of basically try to, you know, again, find a new job, wrap up with his current job, wrap up our house, and all our okay. belongings and everything. And, um so I stayed with family and I just started like, I made it my full-time job to see doctors. Like that's all I did. Mm. I, I had, Were you back in Montana? Yeah. And okay. I saw doctors all the time. Um, I, I, 
you know, went to all kinds of different doctors. I started um, during that same time. I also started seeing a psychologist mm-hmm. who uh, misdiagnosed me with post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, I think mm-hmm. I think she felt like the trauma of the stuff that I had gone through in Africa was probably what I was dealing with, and and I, it was traumatic. But I don't I don't think I actually had post-traumatic stress disorder. I think mm-hmm. that I was in a really bad mental state because of my physical health was deteriorating so bad. Yeah, like it sounds like the mental symptoms came along with like the trauma like it didn't come after it was like right kind of right right and up. you know like celiac disease is a disease of malnourishment you know the, the more damaged your small intestine is the less mm. you are able to absorb the nutrients you need from your food and those nutrients are not only important to your physical health but they're also important to your mental and emotional stability you know Oh, totally. I and didn't we don't, think about it. Yeah, though. we don't kind of think about it that way. But at this, at that point, I had probably been sick with celiac disease for 11 years, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was kind of pretty severe by that point. And I just, you know, I was seeing a lot of doctors and I was seeing the psychologist and um, I was having a lot of trouble. I would wake, I I couldn't sleep well. I would wake up multiple times a night in just like drenched in sweat, my heart beating out of my chest, like certain I was about to die, like taking my last breath. Um, I, I started having like a lot of weird swelling, um, in my throat. I started, um, developing sensitivities to other foods, um, which eventually like kind of started, you know, kind of culminating on the like, um, on the like uh, anaphylactic side of things. Oh, really? Okay. Um, by this time I did start to have some digestive pain more, um, you know, a lot of pain in my stomach and stuff like that. I think I probably had developed small intestinal bacteria overgrowth by that point. Like I was very distended and bloated a lot. Mm. Um, my weight was really, really down by this point. Like I um, mm. started having problem with like the fat layer under my skin. So I had like these very big dents in my hips where like literally my, this, it was dented in. And above my breasts, like at my armpit, it was like dented inward. Oh, is that because of fat loss? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and, you know, I saw a doctor who told me that um, I was just a very anxious and stressed person and that if I would be less anxious and stressed, I wouldn't lose weight as fast and that I should eat all the well, cookies and pasta and ice cream I could stand to try to gain weight, which was the absolutely worst possible advice he could have given me. I can't believe that. That was a that was just a an MD, not like a psychologist or anything like that. Yeah, that was an MD. And uh but then he they, there was also like periods of panic during this time when I was seeing doctors because they started to suspect really serious things like lymphoma like um mm. you know I had to go in and have some x-rays because they suspected lymphoma is that um blood cancer yeah or what is that okay yeah, yeah or or you know it can be um cancer of the lymph nodes oh, okay Leuke- leukemia sorry is blood cancer and lymphoma is of the lymph nodes oh okay um 
so that you know like so there was like these scary ups and downs during that time i also saw a tropical disease specialist and you know uh in in montana who uh sent my blood to the CDC and we found out I didn't even have malaria antibodies. That was actually a very, very upsetting day for me. I actually really, um, I, I cried really hysterically and hard after I got that news because I was really afraid then about what could be wrong if it wasn't malaria. You know, I see. I started, I started to think, okay, maybe, maybe cancer really is on the table, you know? Mm. Um, so that was really scary and hard. I was having a lot of trouble by this point with things like fine motor skills and speech. Like I slurred my words a lot or I had trouble um, I had trouble finding the word I was trying to say. I would use words that were very closely related but not the right word. Mm-hmm. Or I would have a hard time recalling the word after a lot of attempts. Um, I have a question for you. Did you I, – I, for myself, I remember – I know that when I get sick and I have symptoms or, or even if – when things happen in my life, I have a hard time recalling um, the details of them many years after the fact. So mm-hmm. did you, like, were you recording your symptoms during this time? Um, is that how you kind of remember them so well or, or um, did I was, you just remember? I was partly record. I was recording it a little bit because I was blogging still about our family's life overseas, you know, like, I mean, d- d- don't get me wrong, by this point in the process, like, there was some pretty big gaps, you know? Right, yeah. Uh, it wasn't, I, I definitely <laughs> wasn't blogging like I blog now, you know? Yeah. Like, uh-huh. um, it wasn't a job or anything, and, and definitely there was other things that were more pressing, but, you know, I was I was blogging relatively close to some of this stuff happening, so I, I, I knew it because I was recording it there. Okay. I was also having to talk about it a lot with, like, repeatedly with doctor after doctor. Oh, right. Okay. So that kind of solidified some of this stuff in my mind. Okay. Also, some of the things that happened were just, like, just so upsetting. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, like when I start, like when I realized that I was like losing my fine motor skills. What happened was that I, I, I noticed that if I would drop a pen on the floor and try to bend over to pick it up, it would take me multiple times, like seven or eight tries. To actually oh, grasp, wow. to actually grasp it and pick it up, and at first I dismissed it, but then I started noticing that it was happening more and more often, and and I was, you know, I was very disconcerted by that. Were people sort of like your caretakers at this time, or were you um, able to care for yourself for the most part? I was still mostly taking care of myself, but definitely things were getting harder and harder. I I got to a point where I really didn't want to drive at all. Um, I had Mm -hmm. some experiences where I don't really know how to describe what happened. It was kind of like I had a a shock or a, a temporary really fast blackout or something. I don't really know how to describe this. It sounds crazy right now, but <laughs> I would have these, I had these weird events where I was driving and I, I started to be afraid that I would have a car accident, especially if Maggie was in the car. So more and more I started to rely on other people to drive me around. And um, I was still doing things like, you know, obviously bathing myself and cooking and, and cleaning and things like that. Um, I was living with my sister-in-law and my brother, but I was like really needing to lean on people a lot for kind of like 
mental and emotional support. So how much time after, like, how long did this period of kind of like being a full-time patient go on after you got back to Montana? So we, we got home in about, I guess, around mid-October, and um, I did that just, like, constantly until February. And in February, um, I started discussing with the psychologist that I was seeing the possibility that I would maybe admit myself to a psychiatric um, ward for maybe two or three days and just kind of, like, basically try to calm the heck down. <laughs> because we couldn't find answers and I just started to think like okay maybe they're right maybe I'm kind of having a little bit of a breakdown here and maybe I need to try to like stabilize myself somehow well and so we were having that the psychologist and I were having that discussion and she was like getting ready to refer me to a psychiatrist to to help make that call the one of the doctors I was seeing referred me to a gastroenterologist and she by this time Dave had come home and um she told us that she thought that um I might have like ulcers but she wanted to run some other blood tests and she didn't tell me what the tests were but they were uh gluten antibody tests and they came back really high positive so then she told us she wanted to do an endoscopy and, um, uh, you know, that's when they put the tube down your throat with a camera and they take pictures and look at the state of your small intestine and they also take biopsies okay. and they, in those biopsies, they look to see if the villi, the kind of small finger projections that are in your small intestine, whether or not those are, um, blunted, um, because that's a sign of celiac disease. And that's essentially why you can't, uh, absorb the nutrients you need from your food. Okay. So um, we went in for the endoscopy and she performed it. And when I um, woke up, she came in and um, <laughs> this makes me emotional too. Mm-hmm. And she said, um, you have celiac disease. And it was like, you know, in 10 seconds, she like, ended like over 10 years of kind of like suffering yeah and it was like so like seemingly simple for her to say that yeah it's you know like um there was still pathology to be done but she could tell visually Mm -hmm. what was wrong in you know and I'm sure um, seeing it visually that my small intestine was so damaged and then, you know, also knowing what she knew f- about my blood results, she was able to say, you know, this is celiac disease and the pathology, of course, confirmed it. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just like really, it was just like so much relief because I yeah I felt like, okay, there really is something wrong and, you yeah, know, I'm not I'm just making this up. Mm-hmm. I'm not just crazy. <laughs> um, was she able to attribute all of your symptoms to celiac disease? Like, was well, she? A lot of the doctors still, uh, you know, following that didn't um, necessarily attribute all of my symptoms to celiac disease. But there's still um, 
in a lot of in a lot of medical circles, there's still a pretty limited understanding of all the ways that celiac disease can manifest. And um, there's kind of this, you know, the, the typical way is like weight loss, diarrhea, and digestive pain. Mm-hmm. But more and more research, particularly from the University of Chicago Celiac Disease Research Center, um, more and more research shows that there's like over 300 possible symptoms and that like only half of people with celiac disease present with those typical patterns. Oh wow. And that many many people have more more like what I experienced kind of like outside of the digestive system manifestations especially the the mental and emotional health stuff that's not mm-hmm. unusual at all. Wow. So then you went gluten-free, I'm guessing, pretty much right away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And did that make a really big impact on you alone? Or was it not until kind of paleo AIP stuff came in that you recovered a lot? Yeah, for sure. So I just think that from, you know, I think like if you, if you're, if you catch the development of your celiac disease, you know, if you kind of know when it was triggered and get diagnosed relatively soon, I think that a straight gluten-free diet may be enough Mm. and you, you may have a good shot at a pretty decent and quick recovery. But I, I think in my situation with multiple autoimmune diseases and the length of, you know, the delay in diagnosis, Mm -hmm. I just think it just wasn't enough. It just, it just was not enough. Um, and actually, you know, there's a lot of people who end up getting told that they have refractory celiac p- disease, which is, you know, like celiac disease that doesn't improve. Um, and I don't think that they really have refractory celiac disease. I think that they oh. they need a, a, a stronger dietary approach, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, yeah, so I went gluten-free right away, but no, I didn't get better. I still struggled for – so that was in February that I got diagnosed. I still struggled till May, you know, through through the rest of February, March, and April. I was still really struggling, having a lot of trouble, still a few more ER visit, visits for, like, anaphylaxis. Mm. Oh, wow. And then um, – I started, I was just extremely desperate. I was just like trying to figure out anything I could. And I wrote some friends um, that I'd known for a long time. And I was like, if, do you guys have any ideas? Do you, I was starting to think that maybe I should try a vegetarian diet. Mm-hmm. And I was asking friends for ideas. And a friend of my friend, she, so my friend referred me to, uh, oh, it was Callie. Uh, Callie, Callie referred me to a friend of hers named Annie and Annie, um, just this kind of a lady who just like knows a lot about a lot of natural things. Mm -hmm. And she runs a natural health food store in Montana. And Annie wrote me an email and said, you know, I don't know for sure what you could do, but I don't think you should go vegetarian. I think you should do a little research about something called lectins. And, you know, Mm -hmm. lectins are this component of wheat and a lot of other foods that are really not, that are really damaging to your digestive system. So that little keyword search led me to Rob Wolf, which led me to Sarah Valentine's site. And I found her beginning research about the autoimmune protocol. And I thought, 
okay, I have, I have three autoimmune diseases. I, I, this diet is probably for me. I better try this. And so on May 1st of 2012, I started AIP overnight. I did cold turkey. And three days later, um, the anxiety and panic and like the emotional side of it just melted away, Grace. I don't know how to explain wow. that, but like I had been um, taking Xanax and I never needed another Xanax again. I haven't taken Xanax since that day. That's amazing. Um, was Sarah's site, that must have been like early days of her site, right? Did yeah. she have just the protocol? Did she just have blog posts written about it? She had, yeah, she had like, a, you know, she had like kind of threads of blog posts, I guess. There was no like, you know, super well written, super well researched and explained protocol like you see now. Okay. You know, and a lot of the stuff that, um, is kind of clarified now was like gray area things then also like there wasn't as much information about kind of the lifestyle aspects mm -hmm. um there was definitely not anywhere near the support information that's out there now none of that stuff existed I mean we all created that yeah okay so there were pretty much no I mean there were no other AIP bloggers it was just no. Sarah yeah, okay. there was just Sarah with a little bit of, you know, she was beginning to do this research to kind of back it up and experimenting with herself and seeing that it was working. And okay. kind of simultaneously, uh, you know, me and Mickey and Eileen Laird and Christina Feindel and um, a woman named Whitney Gray were all kind of trying it and starting to write about it online. And oh, that's how okay. we met each other. And does does Rob Wolf have celiac disease also? He has uh, ulcerative colitis. Oh, okay. So he was, I guess he was just your, like, the paleo link, and then from him you went to Sarah? Yeah. The, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow, so then that must be around the time you started blogging. Like, did you start blogging pretty early on when you started AIP. Yeah, well, I started kind of transitioning my blog about our life overseas into this blog about, like, what I was doing for my health because it, it, it was kind of a natural breaking point. Things had kind mm -hmm. of broke at the point where it was like, oh, you probably have malaria, you have to leave Africa. And mm -hmm. then, you know, there was, like, this long period where I was just trying to figure out what the hell was wrong. And then we got an answer and then, you know, I found the diet, the diet information and started to work on the protocol. And I, and then I started to like, see the connections. I started to understand how lichen sclerosis and endometriosis and celiac were linked. And I started mm. to understand the things that had likely been the triggers in, in me developing the diseases and how the diseases worsened. And I started to understand how like, you know, diet and lifestyle could help it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I was blogging about all that stuff. And I was having just such a profound improvement that I felt like, oh, my gosh, other people should know about this because what if they can get help yeah. faster? What if they don't have to get as sick as I got and it doesn't have to get as crazy as it got for me? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about what, it was like to have the, that early like recovery and like, was it, um, I don't know. It sounds like it wasn't 
like the cold turkey thing going AIP wasn't a huge burden because it was so <laughs> profoundly helpful for you but like yeah well and also like I think it was I was so desperate you know like mm-hmm. I was just in such a place of just like desperation and despair and um I felt like not myself anymore you know mm-hmm. it felt like living in a body that was a traitor to me <laughs> yeah and just like you know my my personality was changing because of the experience and in not necessarily a positive way and it was just really it was handicapping my life to you know it was so inconvenient to be that sick that mm-hmm. I didn't mind the inconvenience of AIP at all <laughs> yeah <laughs> Actually, was Dave home with you at this point, or was he overseas? Yeah, so, but he came home just just a little bit before I got diagnosed in February of 2012 with celiac, and then um, we, he had gotten a job, and uh, we were going to be moving to the Bay Area, and he was doing some fundraising work. Oh, okay. So he came home. I got diagnosed in Montana. Then we moved to the Bay Area, and I started seeing doctors at Stanford, um, and and trying to put my life back together. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and we were we were living there. Um, and so, you're you're just incrementally like mental emotion what were like was it like mental emotional symptoms were the first ones to go yeah that was the first stuff to resolve for sure and then I started to feel you know slowly but surely a little physically better um my weight had bottomed out around like 97 pounds and I started to gain weight for the first time wow um so that was good and uh you know I I was it took a long time for the fatigue to totally get better. And I still even struggle with it a little bit, but it's not anywhere near as bad as it was. You know, like I started to have more energy, definitely brain fog started to lift and I could think more clearly again. Mm-hmm. Um, I stopped having like, you know, the fine motor skills problems and the numbness and the tingling and the, you know, the slurring of my words. And I didn't have the numbness in the center of my face anymore, which was really disconcerting. And I was happy when that went away. I didn't have the heart problem, the weird heartbeat. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, just all those kinds of things, the like anaphylactic, like allergic reaction stopped. And, and then, you know, I started on May 1st and in, in the middle of June of that year, it's and my, my antibodies at that point, my gluten antibodies were actually higher than they had been when I got diagnosed. So even though I wasn't consuming gluten anymore, there was still something triggering it. You know, my body was still like going totally nuts. And then mm-hmm. in June, so six weeks into AIP, I had an and uh, a blood test again, and my antibodies had dropped by half. Wow. That's so amazing. I was really convinced by that point that it was working. And by like, you know, six months, I guess, into it. Was it six months? Yeah, I guess about six months into it, like, um, I, uh, my antibodies normalized. And... I just felt like I had a new body, you know? Wow. Why do you think your antibodies were so high even after you had stopped actually eating gluten? I mean, I guess you said there was something 
I think probably I was I was probably having some kind of um, cross reactor situation okay. happening. I was probably consuming a food that I I wasn't having any trouble with like understanding what foods to avoid you know like sometimes new celiac mm -hmm. patients need a lot of patient education and aren't quite sure how to navigate like reading labels and understanding what gluten is and where it's at and stuff like that I wasn't mm -hmm. having trouble with that part so I don't think it was that I was still consuming you know secret gluten or anything like that I think that I was probably consuming foods that my body was still identifying that way you know I'm this yeah. is this is where I think like folks who are told they have refractory celiac disease actually just need a more serious dietary approach. So it's, it's like summer of 2012 and you're starting to like feel better. And at this point, do you, did you um, like go back to work or did you have a job again at this point? Or is this when blogging kind of became your gig? No. So I was, I was working, I was working remotely for, um, a sorority that I had worked for, um, in, oh, in this, yeah. in this area before, and they had hired me again. They had been so sad when we moved to Africa and they were happy oh. to hire me back and I worked remotely for them, but it was very flexible. And I'm really lucky for that because I was still seeing doctors a lot and, um, you know, like, excuse me, in, in April, when my weight was kind of at its lowest point, and we weren't still, we were still having trouble with like getting my antibodies down and stuff. Like my doctor at Stanford, my, she, a celiac specialist, she was like getting ready to consider hospitalizing me well. to see if we could like IV nutrient pump me and try to get my weight to stabilize. She was starting to get worried about how low it was going. Wow. So, uh, you know, like still doing so much doctoring and stuff I was really lucky to be working for them and have that flexibility and yeah it was not easy to do it but it was such familiar work that I had done for a couple of years prior that even though I was still having like a lot of trouble and kind of brain fogged and stuff it was kind of wrote enough work that it wasn't too hard to navigate if that makes sense yeah uh-huh yeah um so, yeah, I started feeling better. And at the end of that summer, Dave decided that he didn't want to fundraise, that he detested fundraising, um, hmm. that he wanted to be able to work more directly with programs and go to the field sometime. We moved again and moved back here to the East Coast. And I kept w working at the sorority. But by the time I got to one year of AIP, well, at the end of that year, in December of 2012, I gave um, like a, a, a professional enrichment talk to all the women I worked with in the sorority office about paleo oh, wow. and eating and how they could adapt that to, um, you know, they were all young women, like in their early 20s. Um, just fresh out of college and how they could adapt that to like help them manage stress. They were, they all traveled for the sorority a lot and, and how they could adapt it for the workplace and everything. Mm -hmm. And they were all really inspired and desired, decided to do a paleo challenge in January for the new year. And so, and by the time I made it to January, like I felt like I had 
not only did I feel like I had a new body and I just couldn't believe how much better I felt. And I was so like a grateful and appreciative of having my health. Yeah. I just decided that I was going to change everything about my life to follow that. So I, and I, and I had had like this really good experience of talking to these other women about it. And, and I felt like I could probably educate people about that. So I started, um, I started working on finding a school where I could get some training and I ended up just deciding to be, you know, work on a health coach certification. Mm. And that took me another year. And then when I finished it, I left the job at a sorority and went to a part-time job so that I could also work on health coaching part-time. And I told myself that um, my goal would be that in one year I would be able to transition away from the part-time job and health coach health coach full-time and I was blogging all this time too and I actually reached that goal in under six months wow that's a really cool accomplishment yeah I was like on fire (laughs) that's amazing how so the health coach program did you say it took took one year a year okay Mm um and you were Oh my God, this is, that happened so quickly, like your recovery and then health yeah. coaching and yeah, yeah, wow. the transition was really fast. So by yeah. the, you know, like I started the health coaching program at like, I guess this early spring of 2013 and I, uh, 2013, is that right? Yeah. And then I finished. Yeah. Yeah. So like by 2014, like two years later, not only did I change everything about my diet and lifestyle and recover my health, but I changed my whole career too. Yeah. Wow. Um, Were you able to do, did you do the health coaching thing in addition to your sorority job? Like you were taking the classes? Well, no, when I finished the, when I finished my health coaching certification, I switched to a a different job. I actually worked for a real estate firm, um, part-time doing accounting. Okay, I mean, like, the certification program, like, could you do that in addition oh, to Oh, yeah, job? I did it while I worked at the sorority. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh-huh. Okay, got it. Um, okay, so that brings us to, like, 2014, the mm-hmm. middle of 2014, when mm-hmm. you're doing full-time health coaching. Mm-hmm. And had you written your book at that time? In December of 2014 is when I released my book. Wow. So that sort of feels like, I mean, okay, wait, you tell me, I guess from that point to now, have there been additional um, kind of developments or realizations for you in terms of your health and your journey? Or do you feel like that is sort of the conclusion of that chapter, that like recovery chapter of your life? Um. I had in July of 2014, I had um, my second uh, laparoscopic surgery for endometriosis, Mm. Um, which, you know, there's two different ways you can have surgery for endometriosis. One is called ablation, where they burn the endometriosis off with lasers, but that's not very effective because of the deep infiltrating nature of endometriosis Mm. you need to do a technique called excision where they carefully cut it out with Mm. a with a combination of lasers and actual like you know scalpels and whatever so um 
my the first time I had surgery, it was with ablation. So that's not effective surgery. So uh, as I started to recover, I realized that one of the things I needed to do was get rid of the continuous birth control because it's very depleting to a lot of nutrients and very disruptive to the hormones. So I wasn't mm -hmm. going to reach full recovery if I didn't get rid of it. But I also, you know, my I was going to have resurgence of endometriosis without it. So so had it been kind of staving off the growth yeah. of the yeah had? well okay. yeah I mean to an extent I guess or or at least dampening it down so okay. I had um, I learned about these techniques and knew that I needed a better technique and I needed to find a surgeon who did that so in July of 2014 I had my second surgery and these he used the right technique but he probably wasn't as skilled a surgeon as I needed by that point I have pretty aggressive endometriosis so that worked for about another two years and then this last in uh, last July July of 2016 I had my third and hopefully final surgery for endometriosis and I had excision again but I had it with an extremely skilled surgeon in Atlanta mm. and I also knew that it had penetrated my sigmoid colon wall um, mm. And so I had to also have my colon resected. So they took four inches out of my um, sigmoid colon and then sewed the two ends back together. They took out the section that was ruined from the endometriosis. Wow. Have you... Um, I, I know your recovery from that was, was like pretty extensive and you were like very careful and cautious about that has that had any lasting symptoms for you since the surgery yeah unfortunately my uh colon healed with um some scarring and so I have like kind of a not a not a blockage but I have basically kind of a a twist and a, and a narrowing where there shouldn't be. So at, at mm -hmm. one point in my sigmoid colon, I've only got 50% of the, I've only got half the, the um, circumference that really I need to have. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm so careful with my diet. And so I'm so aware of what I need to do to kind of keep my digestive system working that I haven't to this point had any severe complication from that. I know infertility has been like a very, you know, like mm -hmm. prevalent mm -hmm. part of your journey. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I remember you or Dave or someone saying that after your third surgery, it, you had to have part of your reproductive organs oh, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. moved around or something. So, yeah. So I've been really lucky because Every time I've had surgery, even though um, the endometriosis has affected my ovaries, they've been able to continually keep saving my ovaries. But this last surgery, the third surgery, um, they weren't able to save my left fallopian tube. Like it was totally destroyed from the endometriosis. Mm -hmm. So I lost my left fallopian tube this time. But I'm most uh, focused on keeping my ovaries because those hormones are so important. You know, if I have to go into an early menopause, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, um, negatives that can happen for a woman, you know, surrounding mm. that. Oh, so is that what happens when you have your ovaries removed? You just, 
you, yeah, you go into early menopause? You'll, you'll go into early menopause. Sometimes women choose to do, you know, um, hormone replacement therapy after that to try to deal with that. And mm-hmm. That can be very tricky to dial in and it, it can have a lot of potentially negative side effects too. So as long as I can try to prevent that, I'm going to. I also yeah. have a disease of the uterus called adenomyosis, which is sort of a sister disease of endometriosis. So the um, endometrial Mm. lining over time has gotten into the actual muscle wall of my uterus now. Um, And so that could mean that eventually I will have to have a fourth surgery to, to have my uterus removed, a partial hysterectomy. So a complete, yeah. a complete hysterectomy means you get your ovaries taken and your uterus and your, and your fallopian tubes, obviously. Um, a partial is when you just have the uterus taken. Um, so, you know, I, I eventually may have to have my uterus taken too, but I'm going to try my hardest, my longest to, to manage mm-hmm. things and hopefully not have to do it. If I could, if I can get to menopause without having to do it, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Man. Okay. <laughs> Cause I guess I, I don't know how to really like wrap up your story because I guess, I guess for every, everyone though, it's an ongoing thing. It's not like you can wrap it in a little bow and be like, okay, now I'm healed. And well, whatever. I guess, I guess I would say that like the, the big the really, the really big, scary, um, uh, daunting part of my, of my recovery is over or my, my journey is over in my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like I feel really, really empowered now and really confident. Like I know what's going on with my body. I know how to address most of it. I know much better how to navigate the medical system. Yeah. Um, and I've had like a really crazy journey, you know? So yeah, I, yeah. So I also sort of feel like, I sort of feel like how I felt when I got to Sierra Leone after having lived in the crazy political situation in Guinea. I sort of mm-hmm. feel like, what are you going to throw at me? What do you got? Yeah. Like, what do you got? What do you got that I can't handle? <laughs> yeah, totally. You've, you're, you own it now. You can. Yeah. 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 Like even, even the like, um, the complication that I had of my last surgery with the kind of, um, you know, narrowing, um, of my sigmoid colon. Like I knew what was wrong before the doctors imaged it and diagnosed it. I went in and told my doctors that I knew what happened and I knew where it was. And, wow! And just based on the, your symptoms, yeah, how you were I I could just tell, and um, I knew how I was going to manage it. And when they did the imaging, the doctor started laughing and was like, "Yep, you're right." <laughs> wow! I was like, "We didn't need to do that." I knew. I told you. Yeah. <laughs> no. Are those pretty? Uh, well, are those pretty great doctors that worked on the excision surgery? Like, have you? Do you have a good? relationship with them yeah the the doctors who actually diagnosed um you know what happened you know with the complication the follow-up of the surgery are are actually doctors here because I couldn't travel back to Atlanta to to kind of work with those doctors again but but yeah they were good they're a great team there's three of them there's two uh gynecology surgeons who do like 300 plus endometriosis specific surgeries a year 
Oh my God. Um, wow. Yeah. They're like practice makes perfect. And then they also have a third member of their team, a GI surgeon who comes in if the endometriosis, you know, has affected the bowel. I feel like that's a good time to kind of wrap up our conversation yeah. at least. Grace, thanks for doing with this with me. And thanks for listening to me talk for two and a half hours. Oh I'm my sorry. God. Angie. Oh my God. No, I, I was feeling like, man, maybe I should like think of, Maybe I should try to skip ahead or something like for your sake. Like I'm thank you for telling me all that. I'm sure that is hard to to like recount a lot and there's a lot of painful things. So. Have a great day, Grace. Yeah, like I'll let you go. Talk to you later, Angie. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast. We're honored to have you as a listener, and we hope that you've gained some useful information. You can learn more about the topic we explored today. It's covered in detail in our book, The Autoimmune Wellness Handbook, along with handy self-assessments, checklists, and other useful resources to put your plan into action. Pick up a copy today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review in iTunes, as this helps others find us. You can also connect with us through our blog, autoimmune-paleo.com, and with the community by using the hashtag autoimmunewellness.